Our purpose today is to understand there really are ultimately only two families that you can belong to. But I want, I want you to not just feel that you have that in your head, but to, to feel the weight of that uh, and the importance of that and, and what it means to be part of the right family uh, when we all start life in the wrong one. Let's pray. Father, please help us to grapple with this truth and we pray that you'll, you'll uh, ram it deep down into our hearts and souls so we'll feel uh, the horror of being part of Adam's family but also uh, the wonder of being part of Jesus' family. Help us to understand how we can go from one to the other. And we pray that we'll walk out of here knowing which family we belong to and even more importantly, that we're in the right family. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, for good or ill, whether we like it or not, uh, all of us inherit certain characteristics from uh, our families. Uh, there are traits that carry on in family lines, passing on from one generation to another generation. What are some of the obvious ones, the traits that pass on? Uh, between generations. Hey, eye colour. Yeah. Hair colour. Yeah. Yeah. You've got uh, you've got your mother's hair. Yeah, isn't that? Yeah, Mick. Yeah, really ridiculously good looking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, a friend has a baby and you say all those questions, don't you? Yeah, oh, you, well, you, you make those comments. Oh, it's got the father's eyes or their mother's hair. Uh, the wheelchair men going back uh, generations all share a very strong uh, widow's peak uh, up here, you know, this kind of shape here of hair, uh, which just gets deeper and deeper. Uh, and they also have really thick, luscious chest hair. There you go. <laughs> But it's not just genetic things that pass on that are traits that carry down through families. Uh, we often inherit ways of behaving, uh, mannerisms, uh, when you start doing things like mum did and dad did and it's like you catch yourself and you're like, oh, I know. Uh, attitudes, uh, values. Uh, it's our family connections and history that often determine what opportunities or lack of opportunities uh, we have in life, the country we're in, the social class that we consider ourselves to be part of and aspire to. Uh, and there are some things that are terribly important for us to recognise in our family history and our connections. Uh, disease, uh, mental illness, things like that. Um, Beth Braga had her mastectomy uh, through the week. Uh, but one of the things that she was most troubled by with her diagnosis uh, was that the doctor said, your three daughters are way more likely now to have the same, the same disease uh, now uh, down the track. And so they've got to be on top of that. They've got to be aware. Um, but there's an even more tragic reality which our passage today speaks of about the family that we all began life in, a problem in our family history, a trait that is far worse than any characteristic, uh, genetic characteristic that we've inherited. It's far worse than any disease that might have carried on uh, through our family tree. And this trait doesn't come from being part of the family of Wiltshire uh, or being part of the family of, of West or Simpson or Grocott. Uh, it comes from being in the family of Adam. Uh, it was pretty funny when he was talking about the Adam family. I was thinking the biggest problem is Lurch uh, or cousin it, but uh, no, there's a bigger problem with the real Adam and that is that we are children of dust. We are mortal, we face death and none of us can escape it. They're, they say that there are two certainties in life. What are they? Death and taxes. You know what? You can cheat one of those. You can cheat your taxes, but you cannot, you shouldn't, uh, but you cannot cheat death. 
To quote William Taylor, an English preacher, death is the ultimate statistic and however much we might brag about being cool about death at the beginning of the 21st century, it is a ghastly reality that does haunt and hang over every one of us. A future dominated by the reality of death and judgment and separation from God. But what I want us to see today and, and want us to feel today is that Jesus Christ offers us the possibility of a different future. A future dominated not by death and judgment and separation, but dominated by grace and kindness and love and mercy in a family which we cannot be separated from once we've joined it, where grace abounds more and more and more and more and where you don't need to have your body cryogenically frozen, you don't need your body treated by a taxidermist, or uh, plastinated is the, the new cool thing in Germany by uh, Gunther von Hagen where he rips your skin off and puts plastic, a clear plastic over you so you go on is his display with all your internal organs showing uh, forever. That's not how you get eternal life. You get it another way. And it's possible because God is offering you a place in a new family, a different family, a family whose head is not Adam, the man of death, but Jesus, the Lord of life. So from God's point of view, there really are two families you can belong to. And here is the possibility offered to the whole world to be united in a new family dominated by grace and love and life. And it's these two families that are being compared and contrasted through this little section of Romans uh, that's in front of us, the family of Adam and the family of Jesus. But before we get into the details, I just want to show you the structure of the passage for a sec because it's a little bit confusing to follow. Because it begins in verse 12 of chapter 5 with a comparison. It uses the two little words, just as. Just as, you know, it compares two things that are alike in some way. Just as a good hot shower feels so nice, so does a hot chocolate. When you drink it, that is, not when you pour it over your head. Yeah, it's got to be a bit just, just as Cher looks like this, so does this dog. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's a much more serious comparison in Romans 5 verse 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and then you're waiting for him to say, so, and compare it with something. Just as this... And you're left waiting for the comparison. And he doesn't actually make the comparison until you get to verse 18, six sentences later, where he tells you how Jesus is like Adam in some particular way. But before he makes that comparison all those sentences later, he, he goes into a whole lot of stuff in between, a whole lot of caveats, uh, a, a whole lot of ways in which he says Jesus and Adam are nothing alike. And he takes so long with all these exceptions to the rule because he thinks like a lawyer, which is exactly how he's trained. He's a lawyer. He's a religious lawyer by training. And he's not, you know, because he's being paid like a lawyer to, you know, by the word uh, or by the minute and so just let's stretch it out and they can make him pay. But, but it's because he wants to dot all the I's and cross all the T's so that we don't get the wrong idea by how he's comparing these two. But eventually he gets down to how they are alike in verse 18. Therefore, just as the trespass led to condemnation for all men, so also one act of righteousness resulted in, in something else we'll get to. One act changing humanity. 
resulting in different family being available, a different future being available. But there's the end of the comparison all those sentences later. Are you with me? Does that make sense? It's a comparison with all these exceptions in the middle. And it's all there to show you just how wonderful and glorious it is to belong to the family of Jesus Christ. And you've got to walk out of here and if you know that you belong to thinking, wow, I'm part of that family. In case you get lost along the way, the main point is this. Ultimately, there are just two possible families to belong to. Ultimately, uh, one is the family we were born into, Adam's family, dominated by sin and death and judgment and final separation from God. And so over Adam's family, there's a great big black cloud hanging that rains death on us. And there's his other family, which God in his goodness has brought to us in Jesus Christ, a family of grace and forgiveness and love and life, which once you join it, you cannot be separated from. That's the structure. So let's get into it. Okay. First thing I want to draw your attention to is that we all face death because of our family connections. It wasn't intended to be that way. It's not natural and normal. Death reigns in the family of Adam. It's in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now, you're probably at least a little bit familiar with the way that the Bible begins. Uh, God created a wonderful world. He made the first man, Adam, the first woman, Eve. Everything was great. Uh, they loved each other perfectly. Uh, they they uh, loved God. God loved them. God was with them. They walked with each other. They, uh, it was altogether lovely. That is, until Adam ignored one of God's one command to him. Remember what that was? Don't eat the fruit of that tree over there in the middle of the garden. Uh, it wasn't an apple tree as medieval art depicts it. It wasn't a grape or a fig as uh, the rabbis debate uh, whether it was a grape or a fig. That in Judaism, it's one of those two. Uh, it wasn't even a metaphor for sex as some would suggest. It was the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was, it, was the, it was the means by which they got to decide for themselves what was going to go and what wasn't, what was good, what was evil, what was going to be right and wrong. So basically they were taking it out of the hands of God, saying you, you no longer get to determine that, we're going to make it up for ourselves. And so it was about telling God to get nicked uh, and mind his own business and just stay out of human affairs. It was rebellion. And they decided, hey, that's awesome, let's go for it. But that one act had a consequence which Adam had been warned of by God. The day you eat that fruit, you will die. You'll die. And it wasn't that he would die straight away in summary execution, but that death would become his reality as he and his wife and their family would be excluded from the garden that they lived in and from the eating from the other tree that was in the middle of the garden, which is the tree of life, by which they could have eaten and lived forever in joy and harmony, but they were, they were cut off. See, death's not just biological, it's relational. They were cut off from God and his provision. They were uh, separated from God and his goodness and, de and death, biological, relational and eternal, was the result. And not just for him, but it had consequences for the whole family. 
And so from Adam's one act of rebellion against God, says Paul, all people everywhere throughout all history have been infected, if you like, with the nature of sin and from that nature flows death. But it's not just that we can blame our forefather and think, yeah, mongrel, if he didn't do that, we'd be all right, you know, kind of thing. Uh, we're just helpless victims now suffering because of him. No, because we all share the family trait. We all have Adam's nature. We do what our father did. We shake our fists at God. Uh, and, and that very act, as we shake our fist at God and refuse to live life the way he wants us to, it demonstrates we've got exactly the same sinful nature inside us. We just can't escape it. And we can't escape death either, which is the consequence. You see, that's the argument of verse 12 there, isn't it? Sin entered through one man and death came through sin and therefore death came to all people because all sinned. We were all involved because that's the family we were born into and we're just like Dad and we all share his punishment. And the next couple of verses, he says basically that it doesn't matter which age of humanity you belong to. That's true. Whether you lived before God's good law came through Moses or whether he came after that. All humans are in the family, all face the same consequence of death because we all share that family trait of rebellion. So verse 13. For before the law was given, through Moses, sin was in the world. But sin was not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. And we heard that great long list. The pattern that Edwina pointed out, they all, apart from Enoch, died. Ever, even those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. They, all of them died. Even though they didn't have a specific command from God, they still had sin, they still died. So God giving the law through Moses didn't suddenly make humans sinful. We already were. That's his point. But what God's law does when it comes is act like a giant spotlight, a giant searchlight on sin. Because once you see the perfect law of God, you read it and study it and you think, well, you know what? I don't do that. I'm not like that. Oh, there's that bit. Well, God's got me there. Yeah, kind of, I failed that one too. And so whether there were people pre-Moses or whether there are people today who don't have God's specific law given to them, either because they're, they're too young to read or they just don't have access to the scriptures, all alike are trapped because of their family connections in sin and rebellion and because of that death reigns over all of us. Now I just want to take a little slight detour for a second. Have you ever heard of the idea that humans are born with a blank slate? We, we, we're born with a blank slate. Um, the, for the past 150, 200 years or so, that has been the philosophy that has driven society. And it's a fundamental tenet of our education system. The thinking and teaching in our culture is that we're basically born with a blank slate and the way that we behave uh, is basically a result of the way we're educated or the way we're brought up, or the kind of environment that we find ourselves in, or whether we're rich or we're poor. Okay, And so if we change the system, we can fundamentally change how humans behave. If we don't like people agree, that's because of 
these social factors and so take them out of that kind of society, put them in this kind of society and they won't be like that. But it's interesting, even some of the uh, atheists are starting to say, that's actually not true, it's a load of nonsense. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the atheistic geneticist, uh, hang on, where do we go there? What have we got? Um, how he came to fame because of this book, The Selfish Gene, back in 1977. Uh, it's a book which argues that our genetic makeup is what makes us compete and fight and make war and so on. And we can't change our genes. We're not blank slates. Uh, in 2002, a, uh, a psychologist who's listed in uh, the 100 top influential atheists, uh, his name's Steven Pinker, he wrote a book called The Blank Slate. Uh, that's this guy. He basically says the same thing, but he's not coming from a, a, a science gen, a, um, a gene study point of view. He's, he's just talking about human nature. Uh, and in The Blank Slate, he says, we're, we're genetically programmed to behave in certain ways. And so, for instance, no matter how well you educate a human being, or how beautiful their surroundings are, or how much you raise their standard of living, uh, the way we are cannot really be dramatically changed, he says. You can, you can take some of the hard edges off, but you can't change the fundamental reality underneath. Uh, here's something he said in an interview a few years ago. Uh, I've got it up here. It is no more possible for human beings radically to change their nature than for cats to become vegans. Uh, now, you might be sitting there thinking, I've got a cat who's a vegan. <laughs> but that's only because you tied them up and force-feed them vegetables. Uh, right? You get the drift of what he's saying. You, know, uh, you, you can't make a cat a vegan. It's just impossible. Um, uh, listen to his next statement. The radical political programs that imagine a fundamental change in human beings look a whole lot less plausible at the start of the 21st century. To suggest that we can radically change in human nature with all its greed and aggression is like saying other species will look and behave differently if we put them in a different type of zoo. Now, Pinker is not a Christian. He's an atheist. Uh, and he wouldn't connect it all back to Adam and God. He wouldn't talk about it in this kind of language. But he's basically saying we've got a sinful human nature and try as you might, throw money at it, educate it, whatever you do, stick it in a different city uh, and you ain't going to get away from that. We're not born with a blank slate. After 200 years of humanist philosophy, it's interesting the atheists are finally catching up to the Bible, right? And saying, well, Paul had that 2,000 years ago, right? Back to the passage. The first point is this, we've been born into Adam's family with our sinful nature and therefore the black cloud of death hangs over the human race. And that's the family by nature that we belong to. It doesn't matter if you live in the beautiful mansions up in Denham Court. It doesn't matter if you live in the housing commission in Aids or anywhere else. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor who can bring temporary life and healing and relief to the sick and the ailments of this world or whether you're a machine operator who makes widgets for someone else's profit. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher or if you're a student. We've got to take stock. We've got to take stock. As you look in the mirror tomorrow morning, 
to shave or do your lipstick or whatever you do, there staring back at you is someone with a sinful nature. You will die and you will be judged. But Paul's main point in the passage is that by God's grace, God has made it possible for us to be in an alternate family with another future where it's no longer death that rains down on us, but grace so that, so that we can reign in life. So let's move on from death to life, from the reign of death to the reign of life in the family of Jesus. As I said before, Paul begins by pointing out some of the ways in which Jesus and Adam are nothing alike because he doesn't want us to be confused. And I just want to point out two highlights. Number one, Adam and Jesus differ in the nature of their works. They do different stuff. They did different things. Verse 15, the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many die by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? They're totally different in what they did. One rebelled. One came to bring a gift. One heard God's law and then did the exact opposite. That's what he means by the word trespass. It's kind of an interesting thing. It's not a very common word in the, in the New Testament, but he's used, he used the word here. It means he's, he's, he's seen the boundary and he's crossed it, just like if you're trespassing on someone's land. He saw the boundary and he went across it. Jesus did exactly the opposite. He brought a gift from God rather than breaking faith with God. First difference. Second difference, they bring vastly different results. Verse 16. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin, the, death, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? See the difference in results? One brought condemnation. Uh, being damned, the, the, the judgment of death and separation from God. The other brought what he says is justification, that is an acquittal, a, a declaration from God of innocence, of not guilty. And so if we're in Jesus' family, we're transferred from being under the reign of death to reigning in life. We're made kings and rulers in Christ. I know some of us are keen bushwalkers. Anyone like bushwalking? Anyone remember liking bushwalking once upon a time? Uh, when I was young, uh, about five years old or so, uh, my my dad loved bushwalking. He took us bushwalking everywhere, down Audley, Weir a lot of times and things. But this one occasion, he took uh, the neighbour's kids as well. It was him and, and a whole bunch of kids. And we went down what we called the water park. It's kind of flows down into the Wananora River. Um, you go down from uh, Camp Wanawong, down the stone staircase, and you end up in this very steep valley and things. And we, we thought we'd try and climb out of the valley. It's just kind of just very steep, rocky ground. Uh, the English would call it scree-scrambling. Uh, scree-scrambling, there you go. Um, uh, but we're clambering up all this loose scree stuff, and my friend across the road, Matthew, uh, who was also five, he raced on up ahead and he dislodged a couple of little rocks. And they started tumbling out. You know what it's like. 
you know, that one rock, one little pebble hits another one, right? the two of them hit another one, and then all of a sudden there's lots of stuff coming down and it grows in momentum and power and force and then this great slide and this huge rock hit me on the head. Uh, and there's still a hole in my skull today from where it cracked it. Uh, you can feel it afterwards at morning tea if you're so inclined. Most people who do go, oh, that's weird. Um, but you're welcome to have a go if it makes you feel good. <laughs> and, and, and that's how an avalanche starts, isn't it? And it's a bit like that with Adam. It begins with just one act of rebellion and then another and then another and then the avalanche begins to cascade throughout the history of the human race, gathering pace and momentum and intensity and an avalanche of rebellion and sin and death and judgment. But then comes Jesus and in one glorious life, perfectly pure and an obedient death, where on the cross he bears the full force of the entire avalanche of wrath and judgment on his shoulders. And he carries the weight of God's wrath against the human race there on the cross. And he begins another avalanche, an avalanche this time of grace and goodness and life and as those who trust him are freed from sin and its consequences. It's almost like, uh, you know, when you have... A, a rocky projection. If there was an avalanche above it and it was coming tumbling down above it, it crashes over this big outcrop and there's a big empty space underneath it, right? That's where you want to be if there's an avalanche, right? In the protection, in the calm, where, where there's peace. I mean, there might be loud noise outside, but, but you're safe. It's a bit like that. And that's the point of verses 18 and 19, where at last he gets to make the comparison. Here's how Jesus and Adam are very much alike in that in each man's case, one man's act affects all of humanity. See verse 18? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Not that everyone gets it, but it's made available for everyone. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one man many will be made righteous. Now I've drawn a picture kind of of the family trees here on the, on the handout. Uh, and you can see that the boxes look the same. There's the same pattern. That's the comparison. But inside the boxes it's, there's a lot of differences, you know, there's dissimilarities, sin, condemnation, death, death abounding uh, versus righteousness, justification, grace and life and grace and life abounding. Very different inside the box, but the pattern is the same. That's how they compare. Death from one, grace from another, but the flow is the same. Different act, different results, but both have a fundamental flow onto humanity that looks the same. Now, if you've got a pen there or maybe a very sharp fingernail, or you want to write in blood, or maybe you want to do it all metaphorically. Uh, You see there's two red boxes there? I want you to write something in the two red boxes, um, even if it's in your mind. Between death and death abounding, write the word law, law or God's law. Uh, If you have trouble spelling, that's L-A-W. There you go. 
But between grace and grace abounding or life and life abounding, you know what the word is? Law. L-A-W. Law. Very interesting. You see that in verse 20. The law was brought so that trespass might increase. The law makes sin worse. As I said earlier, the law kind of throws a spotlight on our sin and shows it to be what it really is. The law goads our sinful nature so that when you see the sign like, don't walk on the grass, all of a sudden you've got a law, what do you want to do? (laughs) Who's watching? Anyone going to do anything? Yeah, I got it. You want to go there? You didn't even think to walk on the grass before, even though it was still wrong in whoever's grass it is. But, but you hear the instruction, you think, I want to do it. If you were uh, on Facebook a few weeks ago, the Equip conference, I noticed uh, some of the ladies in our congregation took a photo of themselves, which they shouldn't have done, at the train station with the yellow line, all doing this. <laughs> yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> If there was no yellow line there, they wouldn't even think to do that. You don't go near the edge of a platform, right? Shame. Anyway. <laughs> so, and that's what the law does. It goads. My wife was included, by the way. Just so, yeah. That's what the law does. It goads our sinful nature so that the law increases our sin, both in showing it to be sinful, but also goading us to sin more. And we'll get to that in a few weeks when we come back to Romans as well. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see how the two boxes work? If you're in Adam still, and that might be the case that you're here today and you're still in Adam, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, what does the law do to you? You think, well, hey, maybe if I just please God enough and I read his laws and do what he says and go to church enough and get baptised and all those kind of religious rules, then then that will sort everything else. No, uh, it only increases the extent of your sin. Do not gossip. God hates it. But we gossip. Do not lie. God hates it. But I lie. Don't be jealous. God hates it, but we're jealous. Have no selfish ambition. God hates it. But we have selfish ambition. And it's almost exponential. 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, uh, 64, 2, 65,536. You know, sin just abounds under Adam. It only increases. There's more and more of it. It's an avalanche leading to death. But you put law in under Jesus Christ and even the law cannot shake us from the family of grace because gossip, God hates it, but I've been forgiven. Lies, God hates it, but but I'm forgiven. Jealousy, God hates it, I'm forgiven. Selfish ambition, God hates it. I've been forgiven. 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, It's all forgiven because I'm in Christ and in grace and in life and that the grace is abounding. I reign with Christ and there's glory and joy and peace. Now that raises a whole bunch of questions, doesn't it? Um, about, well, hang on, if I'm in Christ and in grace, does that mean I just do what I want? Can I, can I just sin it up? Uh, and, and that's the very question he's going to move on to in chapter 6. 
but we're pausing for a few weeks. So we're going to pick up that kind of stuff when we come back in a month's time uh, to Romans. But as we come to the end of this first term in Romans and, and round out part one of Romans, the question is, and you've got you to think this through seriously, which family are you in? Whose family do you belong to? Which one do you think? Asked quite a lot of people this morning after 8 o'clock. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. A couple went, I really don't know. I hope I'm in the right one. Well, you put your faith in Jesus. Trust Jesus. No matter what you may have done in last week, if you're in the family house because you're trusting Jesus, he's died for you, he's paid. I'm not talking about being a house guest in the family home. I mean, all kinds of people could come and live with you for a while, but they're not family members. Uh, you know, maybe you've been coming to church or you come today and you think, well, that's all right, you know, or come for a long time. But you really don't have your own right relationship with Jesus. Uh, I'm talking about being a member of the family because it's only the true family members who get the family benefits, who share the family traits, who share the family inheritance. Are you part of Jesus' family? Or are you in Adam still? Are you still part of that family? You will die, you will be judged, and you will be condemned and separated from God forever. God is angry at sin and you will face an eternity separated from him. But the good news is we can change from one family to the other, even this morning if we wanted to. It's just a matter of asking God for the privilege, thanking him for what he's done, standing in the shadow of the outcrop. He's born it. We've just got to trust him and accept his offer. Adam or Jesus? Whose family are you in? where sin abounded, grace increased all the more. I'm going to pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we confess that this vast avalanche, this torrent of sin, is very much present in our own lives. And so we praise you for the death of Jesus, freeing us from sin and judgment and your wrath and separation from you. And we pray that you would help each one of us to trust Jesus and by doing so become part of his family. And we pray that you would help us this week, no matter where we may be tomorrow, what we may be doing, to hold out the hope of life and of grace abounding to to ourselves and also amongst those with whom we live and work. We ask in his great and glorious and wonderful name, Jesus our Saviour and King. Amen.